Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. And hello to all my friends down in the CLC. We are so glad you're there. Those worshiping online, we are glad you are with us. We've got a little elbow room up here for which we are grateful. So thank you to you all worshiping in the CLC. I snuck down there myself. They have donuts down there. So who knew? Uh, they have to see me on screen, but they get donuts. So there you go. Uh, listen, we're in a fun series right now, but a little bit challenging. Um, we're asking ourselves, how do we prepare for the hills and rough terrain that inevitably come inside our most important relationships? Uh, like, like a mountain bike, one minute you're coasting along and the next minute you've got to climb. And if you don't know how to shift gears in those moments, well, you're, you're going to crash. So last week we talked about the first shift. We said all of us need to learn this shift. When you disagree, and in every relationship we have that matters to us, disagreements arise. When you disagree, we need to learn to shift from a posture of conflict to a posture of curious conversation. Uh, we learned that from Romans chapter 14 and 15, if you want to go back and read that for yourself. And I heard some great stories this week of people that are making that shift. I heard some funny stories, but also some serious stories of friendships and married couples that are saying, we've got some disagreement that has been leading to destructive conflict, but we're going to make the shift. And we're going to try to get curious about each other. I will just say, if you need help making that shift, maybe you've got a relationship that matters to you and you're sort of stuck in conflict, uh, please reach out and get some help. Uh, come talk to me after the service. Let me connect you with our care team. We've got a staff counselor. We've got marriage mentors. We've got parenting help. Uh, you don't have to stay stuck in a cycle of conflict. You can make this shift to a posture of curiosity. And this week, uh, we've got a new shift. Um, uh, like last week, this sermon is going to sort of have two big moves. You might call the first move theological. We're going to try to understand a little bit about how God treats us. And the second move is relational. In light of how God treats us, how can we treat one another? Uh, and for our theological move, I want to think a little bit about this question. How do we experience and relate to the wisdom and will of God? God's wisdom, God's will for our lives, how do we relate to God's wisdom and will? And, and, and to do this, uh, to explain this, I'm going to need uh, two boxes. Uh, I need a box called grace and a box labeled law. Uh, because these are the sort of the two fundamental ways that we can relate to and encounter the wisdom and will of God. Law is how we encounter God's wisdom and God's will apart from the work of Christ. And grace is how we encounter God's wisdom and will in light of the work of Christ, because of what Christ has done. When you read through the Bible, uh, this kind of will represent God's will and God's wisdom. My preaching Bible here. When you read through the Bible, the first way you encounter the wisdom and will of God is as law. God gives God wisdom as a covenant law for a covenant people. Rules for God's people about how they should live. And when you encounter God's will and wisdom as law, there are several 
significant upsides to that. Number one, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. It's all there in the rules. You know when you're supposed to do it, and you know the consequences if you don't. Uh, you know, you can look at Deuteronomy. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will live long in the land, you and your children and your children's children, and you will be blessed. But if you fail to keep my commandments, you will be removed as my people. So you know the consequences if you don't. But there are some radical downsides to encountering God's will and God's wisdom as law. Uh, the biggest one is that none of us can keep it. None of us actually obey God's will and live into God's wisdom. All of us break it. Whether through error or mistake or rebellion, we, we don't live up to the wisdom of God. And when you break the wisdom of God understood as law, you therefore are condemned by it. And consequently, the law didn't actually work. It didn't actually produce righteousness in God's people. This is Paul's uh, main point in the first kind of half of his letter to the Roman church, is to explain to him that when you are under the law, you are condemned by the law. Paul says things like this, all who sin apart from the law perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. It's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous. You know, he says, if you obey the law, you're declared righteous, which consequently means no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of of our sin. When we encounter God's will and God's wisdom through the structure of the law, the end result is condemnation. But that's not the only way to encounter the will and wisdom of God. Here's how Paul describes the other path. Paul writes in the very next verse, Romans 3, verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. There's another way, he says, to encounter the will and wisdom of God, the righteousness of God. Apart from the law, that's not the only way. To which the law and the prophets revealed. The righteousness is now given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says there's no difference. According to the law, everybody's a lawbreaker. We all fell short. But all are also freely justified by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God held back the condemnation that is the only way we could experience God's will and God's wisdom. He held it back to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul says that now in Christ, we experience the will and wisdom of God in a whole new way. When you experience God's will and God's wisdom through the lens of grace, it's completely different. The condemnation of the law has been borne by Christ. The judgment of the law has been borne by Christ. And, and what do we have? Well, we, we still have 
all the upsides, the will and the wisdom of God still teaches us how we are supposed to live, still invites us into a life that God blesses and God rejoices in. We are still able to show gratitude and to demonstrate our covenant love for God by our obedience. But all the downsides are gone. There is no condemnation. The penalties of disobedience are borne by Christ. The consequences of our failure and our weakness to to live out God's will and God's wisdom are carried by Jesus. Instead, when we do inevitably ignore God's will or fall short of God's wisdom, we are not condemned, but rather we are disciplined by God and called back to holiness. It's completely different. When we encounter God's law, God's wisdom through the law, our only ultimate experience is one of condemnation. For how else could we experience it? But when we encounter God's wisdom through the grace of Jesus, well, here's how Paul puts it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit now gives life and has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, the law didn't even succeed in producing righteousness. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he has condemned sin in the flesh, but now in his flesh. Sin is still condemned. It's just condemned in the flesh of Jesus in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us, in order that we might now live according to the will and wisdom of God who do not live according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit. So do we still have a relationship with the will and wisdom of God? Absolutely. But no longer a relationship of condemnation. There is no condemnation. Now the relationship we have with the will of wisdom of God is one of calling. The will and wisdom of God speaks into our life, calling us to obedience, calling us to holiness, calling us to live a life that God blesses. Again, let's go back to Romans again. We're just going to be in Romans this whole month, I guess. Romans 12. He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of the grace of God, he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And Paul's saying, listen, the will of God no longer functions to condemn you. That has been completely taken care of by Jesus. Now, though, you get to be transformed by God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Apart from Jesus, the only way I know to approach the will and wisdom of God is with fear because its function is to condemn me. But in light of Jesus, I get to approach the will and wisdom of God with joy and gratitude seeking to learn how it is I am meant to live. And I bring all my failure. I learn the wisdom of God. I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't live that way. 
And God says, therefore there is no condemnation. And then God invites me to be transformed according to his will and wisdom. I, I love Paul puts all this in a real tiny, little nice package when he writes to Titus. Uh, look at what he says here. The grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Did you look at that? That's what grace does. It offers salvation. It eliminates condemnation. But then it still teaches us how to live lives of goodness and holiness, teaching no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That's what grace does. If I were to summarize uh, the, the, the first section of this sermon, the kind of the theological shift, it would be like this. When we experience the wisdom of God as law, our experience is condemnation. But because of the grace of Jesus, our experience of God's wisdom shifts from condemnation to calling. This is an amazing gift. Some of you right now are, are still letting yourself experiencing the wisdom and will of God as condemnation. As if Christ did not die. And you can't even bear to face the truth of what God is calling you to and the moral commands of God because you are allowing yourself to be condemned by them as if Christ did not die. Some of us are ignoring God's will and wisdom because we are ignoring that there is still a calling. We're saying, oh, because of Jesus, I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, no, no, no. The will and wisdom of God is still at work in your life, but it shifts from condemnation to calling. That's our theology lesson for today. If I might, uh, just briefly, uh, I want to build on that lesson. Uh, before I get to the main practical thing I want to say, I just want to offer you a free parenting tip, okay? Parents, you want to understand the theological shift that I just talked to because as your kids get older and they move out of that little kid stage, and then obviously when kids are little, rules, you got to do rules, right? Do this, buy this, and if you're not, you know, you'll, you'll get put in time out or whatever. You got to do the rules when kids are little. But as kids age, the rules stop working for all the reasons we just talked about, and you got to know how to make this shift in your parenting. And I'm just going to give you, I'm going to give you four sentences. And I think these four sentences are the secret to having moral conversations with your kids, especially as they hit their teenage years and maybe even as they're young adults and maybe you're trying to parent adult kids and you're trying to figure out how do I have a moral conversation with them. I think these four sentences are going to help you, okay? Here they are, right? Number one, in love, God gives us wisdom for how to live. Not to ruin you or to make you have no fun or to whatever. God, the wisdom of God is, is given in love so that we might live that way. Obedience to that wisdom expresses worship and produces blessing. When we live obediently to the wisdom of God, we experience blessing and God is glorified. Ignoring God's wisdom does bring the consequences of foolishness, and this, but this is so important, but it does not bring God's rejection and condemnation. And maybe you want to add to that, neither will it bring mine. Maybe you want to tell your kids that. It won't bring my rejection or condemnation. It will, it will lead to foolishness. You know, you'll have to face the consequences of your foolishness. Instead, God meets us with love and grace and calling back to wisdom. 
Any moral question you want to talk to your kids about as they, as they hit middle school and beyond, this framework will help you, right? Maybe you want to talk to your kids about, about drinking or honesty, and you want to say, in love, God calls us to honesty and sobriety. When we're obedient to that wisdom, when we tell the truth and, and don't get drunk, well, that honors God, and honestly, it leads to a really wonderful life. You'll be known as a trustworthy person. You won't ever have to wake up and wonder how you got there, you know? When we ignore God's wisdom, well, it does bring the consequences of foolishness. If you lie and you get caught, you're probably going to get in trouble for that. If you, you know, if you, you're out, when people get drunk, they get stupid and they end up hurting themselves and others. But it does not bring rejection from me or from God. I'll still love you. We'll have your, you call us, you get in trouble, you know. You're drunk on the side of the road somewhere. You call me, I'll be there. You'll get a speech, but it won't be for a week or two. You'll get love first, you know. Instead... What does God do if God doesn't reject us when we ignore God's wisdom? Instead, God meets us with love and grace and a calling back to wisdom. One of the fun things about these sentences is you can start anywhere you want to, and they go in a circle, right? They go in a, in, in a, in a circle. You know, maybe, maybe your, your, your kid's getting older, and they're, and they're like, you know, why, all, all my friends are cheating on tests. Why shouldn't I cheat on tests too? Well, because they asked the question that way, you'd want to start with sentence three, wouldn't you? That's what they're asking. So you'd say, well, when we ignore God's wisdom, to be honest, these are the consequences. And, and it's, it's bad. But you know what isn't the consequence? You are not rejected by your loving God. God still loves you. What God does is God calls you back in love and grace to honesty because, and now you're back to the top, aren't you? Because in love, God calls Christians to live with integrity and honesty in all things, even if it means a bad grade on the test. But when we do, obedience both expresses worship and also produces blessings. See how you could start the conversation with any one of the sentences, depending on how they ask, and you always lead it back to grace and wisdom and never condemnation and law. And we parents, we mess this up. We, we, we lead back to condemnation and law, which actually leads them away from the way God treats them. That's a problem. That's a problem. Uh, one little parenting secret. If your kid starts with sentence four, like maybe your kid will say this. Hey, uh, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uh, you know, caring adult. A kid says this. They said, what do you think about people who drink too much? Here's a little parenting secret for you. Ready? 90% of the time, if your kid asks you that question, what they're actually trying to figure out is how will you treat me if I do this thing? How will you behave toward me? So you better make sure where you start is sentence four. They wouldn't be asking. You don't need to start with sentence one. Well, God says that's a bad thing. They know that or they wouldn't have been asking you. Start with sentence four. I'll tell you the first thing I think about people who do that or whatever. I love them. I care about them. They have my grace and love. People like that are welcome in my home. People like that are welcome around my dinner table. People like that will never be far from my love. And in relationship and love, I'll call them to the wisdom of God because, and you get back to sentence one, because in love, God does have wisdom for how we live. And when we live in accordance with that wisdom, it does produce blessing. And when we live against that wisdom, it does produce the consequences of our foolishness, but never the rejection of our God. Because God in love and compassion rescues us. So this shift... Parents, this shift allows you to talk to your kids differently about, about morality. Because of the grace of Jesus, our experience of God's wisdom shifts from the law, which is condemnation, 
to grace, which is calling. That's the shift we get to go from. And now, if you'll let me completely switch gears, that's a bike metaphor. See, we're talking about bikes. Get it? Switch gears. Okay. If you'll let me completely switch gears, um, let's apply this to our human relationships. Because what you're going to discover is that this same shift from condemnation to calling is the one that we need to make in every one of our relationships. Now, I just want to share with you uh, that the framework for what I'm about to talk about uh, is not one I developed. It's one Betsy and I learned in a marriage study we did like 15 years ago. The study was called I Marriage. You all remember the early 2000s where the, only, the way to make something cool was to put a lowercase i in front of it? You all remember when we all did that, right? Okay, well, this was then. They took the word i and put it in front of the word marriage. You could probably go find it on YouTube. We found it super helpful. You go look it up. Maybe you'll find it helpful too. Um, and we've shared these ideas with a lot of people, and, and they're about this shift from condemnation to calling. Because the thing you need to know is how Jesus treats us is how we're supposed to treat other people. So if this shift is how God has shifted how he treats us, then this is how we should shift how we treat other people. If you don't believe me, if that sounds far-fetched, here's Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So what would it look like for us to do that in our relationships with one another for us to shift from condemnation to calling? When other people don't do what we want them to do, what would it look like for us to shift from condemnation to calling? Because let's be honest, in every relationship you have, you have stuff you wish people would do, don't you, right? In every relationship you have, you have stuff you wish they could do. We might call this your hopes, your dreams, your desires, right? And I'm not saying you're God, and if they don't do it, they've broken the will of God. They've just broken the will of you. And what are you going to do when people don't do what you want them to do? Now, now, I know some of your desires for your relationships probably are unhealthy desires, but I'm not talking about that. No, that's a different problem. I mean, the normal, the the good desires you have. You know, in in most of our relationships, maybe you've got a best friend or something, or maybe it's your your family, your parents, or your kids. You, You have a desire that you spend some time together. That's a reasonably healthy desire. I hope you have that for some of your relationships. Uh, maybe you, you have a desire that you'll, you know, go get a cup of coffee or share a meal every once in a while and talk some and be in relationship in that way. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great desire. Uh, you know, some of our friendships are built on a mutual desire to have fun together. Uh, what represents fun more than a Connect Four game, you know, so that's a... Maybe that's a desire you have. Maybe you've got a roommate or, or a spouse, and your chief desire for that relationship is that they would just clean up after themselves just every once in a while, you know? You know, some of you got a roommate right now, and, you know, if they washed a single dish, 
you would be overjoyed for a month, you know? Uh, you know, maybe that's, you're, but we've all got, we've got desire. Maybe, it, maybe it's a dating relationship or a marriage and you want some romance here. This is, oh, look at that. That's me and Betsy getting married. I was so young. Holy mackerel. Uh, anyways, but maybe that's, you know, one of your desires. It's a little, little romance or whatever it is. And all of these desires are normal and healthy and good. There's nothing wrong with these desires. And, and hopefully in a healthy relationship, right, we even talk about our desires. That's, that's a little tip for you. In a healthy relationship, we don't get all passive aggressive and hope they guess what our desires are and figure it out because they're a mind reader. In a healthy relationship, we say, hey, I'd love it if we could play some Connect Four sometime soon. That's always fun. I miss playing Connect Four. Or, or maybe you say, hey, you know, I don't know if you noticed uh, that pile of clothes next to this bed is higher than the bed. If you have got a chance, I'd love it if you could, you could move that pile of clothes. Or, you know, I, I miss spending time together. Could we spend some time together? And all these desires, it would be nice to share a meal, have a cup of coffee sometime, or, you know, a little, little romance wouldn't hurt. You know, we could go on a date or something like that. I'd, I wouldn't be opposed to it, you know. And, and in a healthy relationship, we, we articulate these desires. No passive aggressiveness, no, no get, making them guess. But then... Once we've articulated our desires, you know, what, what did we just read? Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Once we've articulated our desires, we actually focus not on our desires, but on their desires. We focus on trying to meet their needs, and they focus on trying to meet our needs. And this is true with your best friend. It's true with your, your roommate. It's true with your spouse. This is, and, and man, this is, this, is, this is great. But... If you're not careful, something happens. If you're not careful, you can turn your desires into a law, into a rule. Uh, but now, now, you're not God, so maybe not law is the wrong word. Maybe we'll just say expectations. Uh, and, and something shifts. What was in the desire box is suddenly in the expectation box. A desire sounds like this. I would love it if we could. An expectation, a relational expectation sounds like this. You better. Bum, bum, bum. If you don't. Bum, 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 bum. And suddenly the threat of condemnation has entered the relationship. Do you hear how simply that happened? Not, I would love it, and boy, if you did, that'd be such a blessing, that'd bring me joy. But if you don't, there'll be these consequences. Condemnation lurks around the corner. Thanks for taking care of the house suddenly becomes, well, you know what my mom did. You know how my dad did it. You know what I expected, and if you don't. I sure enjoyed spending time together. Turns into, you said you'd be here at 5.30. Why don't you come around anymore? Anybody ever had a friend where every time you see them, they spend half the time you're together complaining about the fact that you're not together any more often than you are? That's because they don't, they don't have a desire to share time together. They have an expectation. And if you don't meet it, you're in trouble. A friend who says, boy, it sure is great to catch up with you, says, you never talk to me anymore. Thanks for visiting. Come back soon, soon turns into, I don't know why you have to rush off. Seems like you always rush off. Even romance and physical intimacy can be ruined when desires turned into expectations. 
What's wrong with you? You don't do this that I want. You don't do this that I expect. Here's the craziest one. Some of you know this. This is a tragic story. Some of you know people who have ruined birthdays and Christmas for everybody around them because their expectation of what their birthday celebration needs to look like or just how perfect everybody's got to be here exactly at this time and we've all got to be here and we've all got to be here and everybody around them is killing themselves meeting their expectations but it's a fool's errand because everybody knows you won't live up to their expectations and in the end no matter how hard you try all there will be is condemnation and complaint. That's what expectations do. Expectations like that destroy friendships, destroy marriages. You know, the first thing expectations do is they take away from you the opportunity to show love. When it's a desire, you can say, You know, they say, hey, you want to play some Connect Four? And you say, I'd love to play Connect Four. And they feel love and you feel love and everybody's happy. But if it's an expectation, hey, it's 4.30, that's Connect Four time. Where are you? You said you'd be here to play. And then if you you do show up, there's no love left. It's just you meeting the bar. When it's an expectation, the best you can ever get is to zero. Meet expectations. And every time you miss them, Every time you miss them, you owe them. Every time you miss them, condemnation. Over time, when our desires become expectations, they turn our relationships into the relationship between a debt and a debtor. Expectations say, you owe me. You owe me time. You owe me romance. You owe me physical intimacy. You owe me a game night. You owe me a magnificent Christmas celebration that's all perfect and hallmark. I bet everybody here has a story of a relationship that you just gave up on. Because they were keeping track of every debt you owed them for every unmet expectation you'd ever had. This happens with friends all the time, right? You're in a season of friendship where you're meeting each other's expectations and then somebody's life changes and and suddenly they're not there as often. This happened to me and it ended really well for me, but but in the middle, I, I just hated it. I had a group of buddies. We got together all the time in high school, in the early days of college. Every time I was home, we would get together. And then I was the first of the group to get married. And so I got married, and I got a new job, and my schedule shifted. And suddenly, our weekly gathering, I I couldn't be there hardly at all. Maybe went from being once a week to once a month. And pretty soon, every time I did show up, all we talked about was how disappointed they were and the fact that I didn't prioritize our friendship anymore every single time we were together. And I'm not sure what prompted me to do something about it, but I was really about ready to give up on the friendship. But finally, I just said, listen, guys, here's the reality. I like spending time with y'all. You're my best friends, but my life has changed. I can't do this. I can't keep up the pace I used to. And if you are going to demand that I do it, then I'm just going to be a disappointment to you all, and I'm out. Or you can choose to just enjoy whenever I show up, and it'll keep being fun. And I can do that forever. 
But I can't do this where all we do is talk about what a disappointing friend I am every time I show up. To my great surprise, they were like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's awful. Okay, we'll stop. And they did. And we've been hanging out for decades since. It's awesome. Uh, But you know times when it didn't go like that. Worst thing about expectations, they they take away the chance for love. They create debts in relationships that we can't repay. And they don't even work. Every time you try to manipulate something into following your rules for the relationship, you're right, you're like, I am God of this relationship. My expectations are the new law you have to meet. It doesn't even work. People get so bitter and tired of trying to live up to expectations. It will only lead to condemnation. They just give up. Betsy and I sat down with a couple. They were in the middle of a big fight. And there's more to this story than I can explain. But, but the short version is he'd been washing dishes after supper. You think to yourself, what fight ever started with a husband washing dishes? You know, but anyways, that's what happened. He'd been washing dishes after supper. It was something he did most nights, and he had been doing it for months, almost every night, uh, because many months ago she had asked him if he could wash dishes after supper since she did almost all the cooking, and she thought that would fare if she cooked and he'd clean up, and he'd, he'd said, great. He was nearing completing washing dishes, and he called out as she walked by, kind of celebrating, I've washed all the dishes. And she responded, am I supposed to be impressed? Which was reasonable. She'd been washing dishes all day. You know, it was a big deal. He responded, no, you're supposed to be happy. That's literally the only reason I wash dishes. And the fight was on. The fight got so bad they couldn't solve it. And so they asked us to meet with them to see if we could help. Now, fortunately, Betsy and I recognized this fight. We'd had this fight in our marriage, but also in friendships. This fight is not a marriage fight. It's a relationship fight. It's the kind of fight that happens when what start as desires turn into expectations. So what was a source of love becomes a source of condemnation. And so I asked her, and I'm oversimplifying a long conversation, but I asked her, why do you think he washed those dishes? And she said, well, I assume he washed them because they were dirty and they needed to be washed and because it was his turn. And then I asked him, why did you wash the dishes? And he said, well, I thought she liked it when I washed the dishes. That's why I washed the dishes. But if me washing dishes doesn't make her happy, then I'm definitely not washing dishes. We have plenty of clean dishes. I definitely wasn't washing them because they need to be washed. And if she thinks I'm washing them because it's my turn, like she's made the rules of how the chores work, like it's some chore chart, I'm done. Turning desires into expectations, it doesn't even work because they become a weight 
on your relationship, that pull love out of the relationship, where the best case is you meet expectations and nobody even cares. But what's more likely is you'll fail to meet expectations. And the little debt of condemnation adds up. So what's the solution? Well, grace is the solution. Treat each other with grace. Treat each other the way Jesus treats you. Say to one another, you owe me nothing. Jesus is not counting my debt against me. And so I am going to choose to forget Every single time you've left dirty laundry on the clothes next to the clothes hamper instead of putting it in the clothes hamper. I'm just going to forget every time that happened. You probably shouldn't say it out loud. If you say it out loud, then you're clearly not forgetting it, okay? But internally, you're just going to say, you owe me nothing. And what we're doing is this. What we're doing is we're saying, when others disappoint me, I'm going to shift from condemnation to calling. Uh, if, if you've been doing the thing where you've set expectations about Christmas that make everybody around you feel condemned because they can't meet what you want and it just ruins Christmas for everybody, don't wallow in that. Just repent of it and treat other people the way you treat Jesus and say, for now, here are my desires for Christmas. I want to see everybody as often as possible. Wouldn't that be fun? But you owe me nothing. And if it gets too busy, we'll get together in January. I understand. Be that parent. And everyone around you will rejoice and love will abound. Uh, Time. You want time with your friend? Just say, listen, I know our schedules have been crazy lately. If you've ever free, I'd love to get together. But I get that we're busy. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. I know how to drink coffee by myself. I'm sorry I gave you a hard time. There's no debt. You owe me nothing. The debt's been forgotten. Do we in this world, do we still communicate our desires? Of course we do. In the same way God still communicates God's will. But once we've communicated our desires, our attention is on the needs of the other. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I expect my wife would desire me to be cleaner than I am. She'd be a fool not to be. I'm a radically messy person. But I'm just telling you, I haven't experienced condemnation for being messy. I'm going to say 15 years. I'm going to say 15 years. She lets me know when she needs it. But there's no condemnation there. It means it's all love. It's all love. I feel love from her. And when I do manage to clean something, she feels loved by me. All the things, all the things that you want from others, you can experience, you can articulate as desires without expectations. So therefore, is, there is no condemnation. And then you just are going to love first. You're going to look to the other interests before your own. Let's wrap up, though, with, um, let's go back to the theology that undergirds this. Because you're never going to be able to treat somebody else this way until you remember how your God has treated you. There is, for us, as God's created and beloved children, there is God's will and wisdom for us. 
And apart from Jesus, the only way we can experience the will and wisdom of God is as a law. A law that we do not keep, therefore we are by it condemned. But Jesus Christ came to declare a new kingdom. And in his new kingdom, the only law is grace. And so we now experience the will and wisdom of God, not as condemnation, but as calling, as an invitation to a life that gives glory to God and is for our blessing. And when we understand how God has shifted his treatment of us through Jesus, well, we can shift how we treat others. Let me pray for you. Gracious God, we want this shift in our lives. We want it first from you. We want through Jesus to know that you relate to us with a posture of grace, calling us into your goodness. And then we want to shift in our relationships with one another. Accomplish this now in our lives, God. Help us to, to say, you owe me nothing. I will keep track of no debt. And to begin to just love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name.